the police chief has to be stunned. Running for his life, Joe Butera bursts into the Alliance Police Department and makes a desperate confession. Hey, lock me up, chief. I've killed a man. I got one of the fellas who was trying to get me. Chief Richard France obliges and takes his one-time ally into custody. A quarter mile from the police station, France's officers find Rocco Marcello's lifeless body crumpled on the ground near Butera's home. There's no way around it. Butera, who has survived at least seven assassination attempts and who helped the police take on black-handers, has become a killer himself. Or maybe he already has blood on his hands. Welcome to Tales from the Rep Morgue, the podcast that explores the 200-year-old archive of the Canton Repository. I'm your host, Shane Hoover. In this episode, we conclude the tale of Joe Butera, an Alliance man who is hunted by blackhand assassins during the second decade of the 20th century. Part 1. Hello, Joe. Aren't you dead yet? On September 2, 1914, Joe Butera encounters a sinister stranger on the viaduct that crosses the railroad tracks near his house. According to Butera, the stranger asks, Hello, Joe. Aren't you dead yet? Well, you soon will be. Two years have passed since Butera helped police arrest a suspected group of black-handers. During that time, he has been shot on three occasions including once in the head. When Butera sees the stranger a few hours later on the corner of North Franklin Avenue and Front Street, in the middle of Butera's neighborhood, he takes no chances. Butera says hello and shoots Marcello in the face with a 32 caliber revolver. The bullet goes through Marcello's mouth and lodges in his spine at the base of his brain. Butero looks at Marcello for a few seconds and quietly leaves the scene. He goes to his store on Front Street, talks to his wife, and runs to the police station. When Butera surrenders to Chief France, he appears elated to have killed one of his enemies. I got one of the fellas who was trying to get me. The good feelings don't last. Butera tells police Marcello is a black-hander. He says he shot Marcello in self-defense, thinking Marcello was drawing a gun. But the police don't find a gun, or any other weapon, on Marcello's body. There is the question of what a 24-year-old father of three from Salem was doing in Alliance when he was supposed to be at work. But Marcello's widow says her husband was looking for a job and a house to rent in Alliance. The police charge Butera with murder. In November 1914, he takes a deal and pleads guilty to manslaughter. The judge sends Butera to prison. At least the black hand can't get him there. Part 2, when we come back. Part 2, American Boogeyman. One rumor claims Marcello is really Butera's brother. Another rumor says Marcello is the son of Butera's first wife. 
Then there's the old claim that Butera is the real leader of the Black Hand in Alliance. The latter claim isn't without possibility. Seven months before Butera kills Marcello, three men who are boarders at Butera's home kill a man named Sam Arch in Canton. Arch also goes by the name Sam Fisher, and the killing happens in the home of Ralph Valella. Both men were suspects in the Coretta bombing of 1912, but their cases were dropped. Butera later visits the three killers in court. Did they kill Arch on his orders? Or does it just look suspicious? It's like the national debate over the Black Hand at the time. Is it a myth, an invention of newspapers and cops? Or is it a sinister criminal empire? Or something in between? Just because anyone can write a Black Hand letter doesn't make it a joke. The gangs kill, and some are very organized. One of these is the Ohio-based Society of the Banana and Faithful Friends, one of the first organized crime groups in America to be tried in federal court. From the back of a fruit store in Marion, a Sicilian immigrant named Sam Lima controls a gang that extorts Italians from Pittsburgh and Cincinnati to St. Louis and Chicago. In 1909, the gang tries to extort $10,000 from a couple of fruit dealers in Columbus named John and Charles Amicon. The Society of the Banana threatens to bomb the Amicon store if they don't pay. The Amicons go to the law, and postal inspectors get the case. Using marked stamps, surveillance, and other techniques, the lawmen learn that Lima runs a network of blackmailers. David Myers has written about Lima's gang in the book Ohio's Black Hand Syndicate. And they would write these letters and mail them from all over the United States, They're targeting specific individuals, almost all of them Italians, uh, trying to extort money from them. And they just happened to call their organization, the Society of the Banana and Faithful Friends, and we know this because they wrote it in their bylaws, <laughs> and they kept a nice roster of who belonged, and not only that, they kept track of who they were extorting, and whether they had paid off you know, or not. And if they did, then they sent them another letter to try to get more money. U.S. Attorney William L. Day, a Canton native and son of U.S. Supreme Court Justice William R. Day, prosecutes the gang. A jury in Toledo convicts 14 gang members in January 1910. Sam Lima gets the longest sentence of 16 years. I believe the government will continue on the trail of these men and wipe them out. This black hand business in Ohio was a very real thing, but I believe that we have broken it up with the present convictions. William Day, the repository, January 31st, 1910. Day is wrong. Part 3, when we come back. Part 3, Final Showdown. Butera spends a couple of years in prison before getting parole. He is out by November 1917, when he is attacked at the corner of West Ely Street and Garfield Avenue while walking to work. Butera tells the police he doesn't know who shot him, just that it was a short, heavy-set Italian man with a shotgun. It's the eighth attempt on Butera's life. Police catch a suspect, and Butera makes plans for the future. 
He files paperwork in July 1919 for a passport to Italy. Butera tells authorities he plans to take his American-born children to his homeland. He has a 13-year-old son, Frank, and an 11-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. In August, Butera gets a new job working at the railroad yard across the tracks from his home on the southeast corner of Webb and Patterson, where he has lived since he was paroled. On August 19, 1919, Butera wakes early and eats breakfast, then walks to work. Apparently, news of his new job has traveled to dark corners. As Butera approaches the north end of the viaduct, the pre-dawn gloom hides one, maybe two, assassins waiting in the weeds. Bullets hit Butera in the face, under each arm, and in the back. A 32 caliber slug pierces his heart and lungs. It's the ninth attack on Butera, and he's out of lives at the age of 43. Police and firefighters search the city for the killer. Around noon, the fire chief and one of his men catch an Italian man on the road to Sebring, near the Alliance Brick Company plant. The man matches the description of the killer. He knows Butera, and knows that Butera is dead. The fire chief drags the nervous man to the police station. But there's a problem. A Romanian witness who talked to the shooter before the murder doesn't identify the suspect as the assassin. And a woman who saw the shooting from the window of her home says the suspect isn't the killer. Police turn the man loose. He disappears, and they never solve the case. Part 4, when we come back. Part 4, Joe's Legacy. Butera is buried in St. Joseph's Cemetery on the east side of Alliance. When the sun sets, a maple tree casts its shade on his grave. The cross that once topped the headstone has broken off, and the weathered inscription is almost illegible except for the name. Who really knows why he was killed? Had Butera once belonged to a gang? Or did he run off with the wife of a jealous husband? Was he a law-abiding citizen who tried to do what was right? Or was he a gangster who played the game to the end and got as good as he gave? It seems crazy that a gang would hunt the same man for 10 years. But a similar thing happened to a Los Angeles barber in 1907. Blackhanders followed that man for five years, from New York to Chicago to St. Louis to Denver to Salt Lake, and finally to Los Angeles, where they shot him down on New Year's Eve while he honed his razor. Butera's alliance is gone. His houses on Patterson and Front Street were torn down long ago. So were the homes and the businesses on East Broadway. The viaduct Butera walked to work was replaced in the early 1980s with the MLK Bridge. Butera's only surviving descendant, Michael Dickey, lives in Florida. Dickey's great-grandmother, Rosina, still lived in the home at Patterson and Webb 
when Dickie was a boy. And he heard stories about Joe's demise, but has more questions than answers. Ever since my mother died, I've been thinking of stuff like that all the time, wishing I could ask her. You know, for some reason I never bothered. She was still alive, but... Uh... The mystery, a lot of mysteries here, and there's nobody else left, which, which is the problem. There's no other relatives. You know. My family, family kind of died out. They're probably the last member of it. <laughs> Ohio enacts prohibition the year Butera dies, a move that does more to end the Black Hand era than anything the cops do. The gangs don't go away, but bootlegging is more lucrative than extortion. Thanks for listening to the Rep Morgue Podcast. And special thanks to our voice talent for this episode, Joe Martuccio and Dave Manley. Our theme music is Blind by Maidon. Other songs in this episode included Beethoven's Sonata No. 1 in F minor, Paganini Romantic Guitar, and Fun in a Bottle, Hidden Agenda, Blue Feather, and The Path of the Goblin King, Volume 2, all by Kevin McLeod. You can check out the show notes and listen to other episodes at cantonrep.com.